Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The president today in North Carolina continuing to stoke unfounded fears about the integrity of the 2020 election. CNN White House correspondent Jeremy Diamond. Now suggesting that his voters should actually, if they vote by mail, also go and try and vote in person. Listen. So let him send it in and let him go vote. And if the system's as good as they say it is, then obviously they won't be able to vote. If it isn't calculated, they'll be able to vote. So that's the way it is. And that's what they should do. And what the president is suggesting his voters should do here is essentially commit voter fraud. If you vote Here we are weeks from the 2020 election, and the nation's top elected official is urging his supporters to upend the basic principle of democracy. One person, one vote. He's saying, vote twice, mail in your ballot, and then go vote again to make sure it was counted. In the reign of news, it's easy for this voting fraud exhortation to just slip by— because Trump is constantly upending norms. But it's worth pausing on Trump's vote fraud messaging, because the vote is the most fundamental pillar of our democratic system, and the president is undermining it almost daily. The Washington Post fact-checker has documented over a hundred false Trump's claims and imaginary threats about mail-in voting. The Post calls these statements, quote, a disinformation campaign. Those falsehoods are part of the more than 20,000 Trump has uttered, according to the Post's July tally. In an email, the Post fact-checker, Glenn Kessler, told me his team has been too overwhelmed with the accelerated volume of falsehoods to update the total tally. Along with his comments on TV, Trump tweeted the exhortation, vote by mail and then go down to your board of elections on election day. He concluded his three-tweet missive, You are now assured that your precious vote has been counted. It hasn't been lost, thrown out, or in any way destroyed. God bless America. Twitter placed a warning banner on the tweets. It said, The President of the United States tweets, quote, Violated the Twitter rules about civic and election integrity. Welcome to Trump, Inc., a podcast from WNYC and ProPublica. Today on the show, we're going beyond the business of Trump to look at how Trump is meddling in the business of democracy. We report on the unprecedented legal actions the Trump campaign is engaged in to block people from voting and on a series of secret meetings between Republican state officials, congressional staffers, Trump appointees, and a conservative activist who peddles discredited theories about voter fraud. This idea of widespread voter fraud is one of Trump's foundational conspiracy theories. This is Trump Inc. reporter Meg Kramer. He talked about it in 2016. He talked about it after he was elected. So when I heard him talking about it again in light of COVID and mail-in voting, my ears perked up. And... I decided to start looking at what the Trump campaign was doing, which was getting involved in these voting lawsuits around the country. There are about a dozen cases that the campaign is a part of, and in all of them, the campaign is trying to restrict mail-in voting. What's so unusual about these cases is that Trump's lawyers are echoing Trump's false claims about the alleged dangers of voter fraud. Someone else is echoing those claims. 
Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr. Here he is in an interview with Wolf Blitzer on CNN. You've said you were worried that a foreign country could send thousands of fake ballots, thousands of fake ballots to people that it might be impossible to detect. What are you basing that on? I'm basing that, as I've said repeatedly, I'm basing that on logic. Pardon? Logic. But have you seen any evidence that a foreign country is trying to interfere no, I'm saying in that people, way? No, I'm saying people are creating... concerned about foreign influence. And if we use a ballot system with the system that, some, you know, that states are just now trying to adopt, it does leave open the possibility of counterfeiting. Counterfeiting ballots, and either so, by someone so, here or so someone overseas. So you think overseas. a foreign country could do that? I think anyone could do it. Have you seen any evidence that they're trying to do that? No, but most things can be counterfeited. That's why we go to the trouble of, you know... Our nation's uh, top uh, justice uh, official uh, is expounding a theory of voter fraud that isn't backed up by any evidence. In that same interview, Barr told a story about a man in Texas who allegedly filled out 1,700 ballots. That never happened. The Justice Department later said Barr relied on an incorrect memo. We asked the White House about all of this. Spokesperson Sarah Matthews emailed us a statement. The facts certainly support the president's claim that the radical proliferation of universal mail-out voting has the potential to jeopardize the integrity of the upcoming election. She added, There is ample evidence that ballots cast by mail are more prone to contestation, less likely to be counted, and have a higher probability of being compromised than those cast in a voting booth. While President Trump wants to enfranchise Americans to ensure every vote counts, Democrats' attempts to drastically alter our election system mere months before a presidential election without the proper safeguards are reckless. Our colleagues at ProPublica, Mike Spees, Jake Pearson, and Jessica Huseman, have uncovered something else. Republican state election officials, Republican congressional staffers, and Trump administration appointees have been secretly meeting with a lawyer from the Conservative Heritage Foundation whose theories about vote fraud have been discredited over and over again. Here's Mike Spees. At bare minimum, what you need in this country is for everyone to believe in the validity of an election. That's the difference between a successful state and a failed state. And and these meetings work directly against what makes a successful democracy and a successful election. We'll hear more about that story later this episode. Meg Kramer takes it from here. The first thing you should understand about vote fraud is that it is extremely rare. This has been documented over and over again. Even so, for years, it has been common for Republicans to raise concerns about fraud as a justification for limiting access to the polls. ProPublica's Jessica Huseman covers voting. She'll be one of our guides this episode. Back in 2016, Jessica noticed that Trump was talking about vote fraud in a very different way. So Trump was really the first Republican candidate for president that took these concerns with him on the campaign trail and called into question the literal validity of the election and said, well, you know, if I don't win, it's going to be because I was robbed and not because I lost the election. Illegal immigrants are voting. I mean, where are the street smarts of some of these politicians? They don't have any is right. So many cities are corrupt and voter fraud is very, very common. 
Like, that's a level of distrust and outward questioning of the democratic process that we than we've ever seen in a president. Then Trump did win the election, but he didn't stop talking about fraud. You look at the dead people that are registered to vote, who vote. Right after he was inaugurated, the Washington Post reported that in a meeting with congressional leaders, Trump claimed without evidence that three to five million people had voted illegally, inflating Hillary Clinton's totals. By telling this lie, Trump could claim that maybe he had not lost the popular vote. And we're going to do an investigation on it. But three to five million illegal votes. Well, we're going to find out, but it could very well be that much. You have Trump formed the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity to bolster his fraud claim. It didn't last long. Here's Jessica. Trump disbanded it not even six months after he founded it, and it had its first meeting. It, it only ended up having two meetings before it embarrassed itself into oblivion. Did it ever publish any findings? No. Trump's claims about illegal voting persisted. Here he is in 2019, speaking at a student conference hosted by the conservative nonprofit Turning Point USA. They vote many times, not just twice, not just three times. They vote, it's like a, a circle. They come back, they put a new hat on. They come back, they put a new shirt on. And in many cases, they don't even do that. You know what's going on. It's a rigged deal. There had been no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the 2018 elections either. In this election, Trump has a new story about vote fraud. It began to take shape at a coronavirus briefing on April 7th, when he was asked a question about the Wisconsin primary. Now, mail ballots, they cheat, okay? People cheat. Mail ballots are a very dangerous thing for this country because they're cheaters. As states across the country were trying to figure out how to safely administer elections, Trump, who votes by mail himself, is dredging up his unfounded claims about voter fraud tailored to our new COVID reality. The mail ballots are corrupt, in my opinion, and they collect them and they get people to go in and sign them. And then they they are forgeries in many cases. It's a horrible thing. Vote by mail is not inherently fraudulent. Trump kept saying it was. People think that they understand how vote by mail works because they have both voted and mailed something. Yeah, that's me. I vote. I send mail. I feel like I know how those things work. And they don't see that there is like a whole organizational structure that is opaque for a reason. Like they don't know how ballots are counted. They don't know how ballots are stored. They don't know how mail-in ballots are organized or the security protocols that are present at every step of the process. And so when you break those things down for people and you explain it to them, then they're much less likely to believe all of this stuff about fraud and how possible it is. Turns out, if you want to convince people that your conspiracy theory is true, it helps if your conspiracy theory is about something that seems so basic, we take our understanding of it for granted. This summer, Trump's campaign took his talking points about widespread voter fraud to a new venue, court. On June 29th, the campaign filed a lawsuit in Pennsylvania to prevent election officials from setting up secure drop boxes where voters can return mail ballots directly. The lawsuit calls the shift to mail-in voting the single greatest threat to free and fair elections. Since June, Trump's campaign has gotten involved in at least a dozen voting lawsuits across the country, 
seeking restrictions on mail-in voting. In Arizona and Ohio, plaintiffs have challenged barriers to vote by mail, asking for more time to correct their mail-in ballots if they forget to sign the envelope, or for more secure Dropbox locations. The Trump campaign went to court to get involved in these cases to defend restrictive voting laws. In legal papers, Trump's lawyers argued they wanted to ensure, quote, fair and orderly elections conducted in accordance with established rules. In other states, the Trump campaign is challenging emergency election plans. In lawsuits filed in Montana and New Jersey, the campaign claims that plans to mail ballots directly to registered voters guarantee illegal voting, that fraudulent, invalid ballots dilute the legitimate votes of honest citizens. It is disappointing that a presidential campaign has come on the side in a clear and unmistakable way of putting barriers in front of the ballot box. Mirna Perez is director of the Voting Rights and Elections Program for the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. Documents show that Trump's re-election campaign has spent over $17 million on legal expenses so far, more than any past presidential campaign. We don't know exactly how much of that has gone to the voting lawsuits. But we do know that since June, the campaign has paid over a million dollars to firms working on those cases, including $115,000 to a firm run by former White House ethics lawyer Stefan Passantino. It's his firm working on the Pennsylvania lawsuit. Joe Biden's campaign has spent $1.8 million on legal services. The campaign is not a party in any of the lawsuits about restricting mail-in voting. Perez says the Trump campaign is having a hard time making its voter fraud argument stick in court. Well, they're not having much traction in the courts because it's poppycock. It's rubbish. Like, they're not producing evidence that demonstrates that these concerns are well-founded at all. For example, in Arizona, the campaign joined a lawsuit in which the Arizona Democratic Party wanted voters to have more time to correct their mail-in ballots if they forgot to sign them. The campaign wanted to maintain a tighter deadline. In that case, a judge ruled that state election officials have to give voters more time. There's no evidence, the judge said, that tighter deadlines prevent fraud. The Trump campaign and other defendants appealed. Another example. In Pennsylvania, a federal judge ordered the Trump campaign to provide evidence to back up its claims about the dangers of voter fraud. Quote, and if they have none, state as much. That's the case where the campaign called the shift to mail-in voting the single greatest threat to free and fair elections. The campaign submitted a 524-page document, which, according to the news site The Intercept, did not include any examples of mail-in vote fraud. The federal judge put that case on pause until a similar case was decided in state court. In that case, Pennsylvania's state Supreme Court issued a ruling in favor of several provisions that make voting by mail easier, writing that claims of heightened election fraud involving mail-in voting are unsubstantiated. The pause on the federal case has been lifted, and the case is ongoing. There's also Nevada where the Trump campaign filed a lawsuit challenging that state's expansion of mail-in voting. On September 18th, a judge dismissed the lawsuit, calling the campaign's claims about the dangers of vote fraud impermissibly speculative. 
The judge wrote, not only have plaintiffs failed to allege a substantial risk of voter fraud, the state of Nevada has its own mechanisms for deterring and prosecuting voter fraud. The Trump campaign has 30 days to appeal. Perez pointed out that these lawsuits have consequences beyond the resulting legal decisions. One, they're distracting to the election administrators who really need to be in the business of figuring out how they're going to provide voters good customer service on Election Day and not responding to lies about voter fraud. She says these lawsuits end up confusing voters. The media, no disrespect intended, uh, likes to publish them, <laughs> likes to talk about them. And so voters end up not understanding what the state of the situation is and what the rules are and what it means for them. This has happened before. In 2016, a court case over a Texas voter ID law wasn't resolved until right before voting began. Voters and poll workers were confused about the details of the new law. Some polling places didn't have enough time to update their signage. It was bad enough without a global pandemic. Now, almost every state is expanding access to mail-in voting to make voting safer. It bedraggles our election system. It bedraggles our democracy to have politicians at very high levels call into question practices that every state in the country uses and the country's been using since the Civil War. I really, really think that our democracy is going to be damaged by casting doubt on the outcome of an election that hasn't happened yet um, and discrediting a way of voting that many, many Americans will be using, some of whom have been using that method for a really long time, and some of them have to because of health concerns. The Brennan Center's Muna Perez speaking with Trump Inc.'s Meg Kramer. The Trump campaign did not provide a statement for our story. There's such a high volume of messaging from Trump, his attorney general, and his campaign that it's easy to forget that no president in modern history has assaulted the very mechanism of democracy like this before. We checked with ProPublica's Jessica Huseman. What role is the president supposed to play? The president really is supposed to play no role in any of this, is, is, the, is the right answer to the question. Like, the president, as the person who is in charge of American democracy, should be reinforcing trust in the system um, because the system is inherently trustworthy. And, and that's really not what we're seeing. We're seeing a president sort of engage in the nitty-gritty of ballot distribution, which is unique, um, and, and then call into question the very system through which he was elected. We'll be right back. We're back. Around the beginning of the year, our colleagues at ProPublica set to work on a story about a lawyer from the Heritage Foundation who promulgates conspiracy theories on voter fraud. All you have to do is look at the many cases, uh, proven cases of absentee ballot fraud to understand that uh, the problem with absentee or mail-in ballots is they are the, the ballots that are most vulnerable 
Hans von Spakovsky, who is well known to ProPublica's Jessica Huseman. Hans von Spakovsky is a longtime voter fraud conspiracy theorist, and he got his start like many people who are now doing strange things in the world of voting in the 2000 election. After that, he went to work for the Justice Department under President George W. Bush. He became such a controversial figure that towards the end of his tenure on at the DOJ, he attempted to be nominated to a position on the FEC, and it went nowhere. It was after the Federal Election Commission post went nowhere that von Spakovsky joined the Heritage Foundation. Voter fraud was his main brief. He's been talking about it for a long time. Here he was in 2012, for example, at a debate over voter ID laws on PBS with host Gwen Ifill. What is the problem that these new laws are attempting to fix? Uh, th- they prevent uh, a series of things. For example, impersonation fraud at the polls, voting under fictitious voter registration names or people who've already died, voting by illegal aliens, and there's been plenty of cases uh, of people... So his work has been judicially discredited, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In 2018, von Spakovsky was called in to be an expert witness in a federal trial over a Kansas law that required proof of citizenship in order to vote. Von Spakovsky was there to present data on non-citizen voting. The judge basically dismissed all of his testimony, called it cherry-picked, called it biased, said that he was more of an activist rather than an unbiased expert witness. And her opinion basically said that she gave his testimony no real credence in her decision. The judge, Julie Robinson, wrote... Von Spakovsky's statements were premised on several misleading and unsupported examples and included false assertions. She said, His generalized opinions about the rates of non-citizen registration were likewise based on misleading evidence and largely based on his preconceived beliefs about this issue, which has led to his aggressive public advocacy of stricter proof of citizenship laws. Von Spakovsky maintains a database of what he calls some 1,300 cases of vote fraud. But to be clear, those 1,300 cases go all the way back to 1982. This is ProPublica reporter Mike Spees. So that means that we're talking about 1,300 cases over a period of time when literally billions, billions of ballots have been cast. Basically, by his own data's admission, it is virtually a non-existent issue. The Heritage Foundation did not make von Spakovsky available for an interview. In a statement, a spokesperson said, The Heritage Foundation is committed to making sure elections are free and fair. Every eligible voter's vote should be counted and not canceled out by fraudulent acts. The spokesman, Greg Scott, did not answer further questions. After the ruling in the Kansas trial, Jessica continued to report on voting. She noticed something. Even after the judge discredited von Spakovsky's work, at the twice-a-year conferences attended by most state-level election administrators, the most conservative members would disappear for a while to private meetings with von Spakovsky. This year, as it became clear von Spakovsky remained influential, ProPublica began to try to learn more about these invitation-only meetings. They started sending out freedom of information requests to certain pivotal states, 
Florida, Ohio, Nevada, Georgia, Missouri, and so on. And it was like really just a matter of days before I think the first batch I got back was from Missouri. Uh, and it immediately showed that the meetings were real. Mike says early on, he and Jake got a document that provided a roadmap for their research. And the thing that guided us was we had gotten a roster of attendees to one of his in-person events that took place in 2019, which gave us a pretty good indication of who was, I mean, these are people that are, you know, to be clear, traveling all the way to Washington, D.C. Von Spakovsky's meetings were attended by state secretaries of state. These officials are often partisan, but their job is to ensure the integrity of their state's elections. The purpose of the meeting was essentially to sort of jointly strategize. And again, only Republican officials were invited to the meetings. Up until 2020, they met basically a couple times a year in Washington. Republican congressional staffers sometimes came. And on at least one occasion, so did officials from the Justice Department, Trump appointees. That event that we had the roster from, the 2019 one, as it happened, also included the two top officials in the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, which is responsible for essentially safeguarding the franchise. I mean, it's, I, I, yeah, I couldn't emphasize enough how crucial it is that that division remain apolitical. I think one of the things that concerns me most is that these meetings are so exclusive and that participants are told not to take notes. They don't want records of these meetings going around. But some officials did keep records. Jake and Mike got some of them. And then a few months later, just out of curiosity, we just checked back in. And it turned out that there were new meetings that were happening. As the pandemic heated up, and with it concerns about in-person voting, Mike and Jake found the meetings were occurring more frequently. One of the emails they obtained was from the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Yes, put it on my schedule, he wrote. So it seemed like there was an effort, an urgency. You know, something had changed. Like, it was already important, obviously, to hold these yearly events. But now that we're actually getting close to election, and this election is going to be carried out in a way that's different than other elections, it seemed uh, for von Spakovsky more important to make sure that everybody was on the same page. Mike and Jake found an example of what it looks like for elections officials to be on the same page as von Spakovsky. In July, a voting rights group in Ohio publicly advocated that more absentee ballot drop boxes be placed at schools, libraries, and other public places across the state's 88 counties so that voters could vote more easily. According to a July 15th email, one of Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose's deputies immediately called and emailed Von Spakovsky, asking to discuss the matter. Weeks later, LaRose announced he did not have the authority to add more than one ballot receptacle per county. Voting rights advocates say that will make it harder for people who want to avoid the crowds of a polling place to cast a vote. They're challenging the decision in court. Just this August, von Spakovsky invited officials to another meeting. The invitation said the convening would, quote, gather the chief state election officials together to strategize on advancing their shared goal of ensuring the integrity of the elections they administer in their home states. This time, a new official joined the group, a Trump appointee from the Department of Homeland Security. 
This person is someone who had a long time association with Hans von Spakovsky. They had worked together. They even taught classes together at George Mason University. And this person, whose name is Cameron Quinn, was presented as the, to quote the email, the new liaison to the election community. What makes that disturbing is, one, that was literally and continues to literally be not true. Two, she didn't have permission to be on the phone. She participated without her bosses knowing. And three, because the call is only for Republican secretaries of state, as far as this one group of secretaries knows, this person is the liaison to the election community. We don't know why Quinn represented herself as a channel for elections officials when people familiar with her role told Mike and Jake that wasn't her purview. That's really, really weird. Uh, and, and all the questions surrounding the weirdness of that event have not been answered yet. A DHS spokesperson confirmed Quinn was not yet an employee of the division at the time she participated in the meeting, but declined to answer additional questions. Other people at the meeting also declined to answer ProPublica's questions. What are those questions? So the major question is, for all of them, why are you participating in these meetings? If you know that his work is unreliable, if you know that the work has been undercut, if you know that much of it has been knocked down, even based on his own data, what is the value in continuing to do this for years now? What is, what, are you using information from Hans von Spakovsky? There are just weeks to go until the election. And there is so much we still don't know. This episode was reported by Meg Kramer, Jake Pearson, Mike Spees, and Jessica Huseman, and produced by Katherine Sullivan. The editors were Jesse Isinger, Nick Varshaver, and Dan Golden. Jared Paul does our sound design and original scoring. Hannes Brown wrote our theme and additional music. Matt Collette is the executive producer of Trump, Inc. Emily Botine is the vice president of original programming for WNYC. And Steve Engelberg is the editor-in-chief of ProPublica. I'm Andrea Bernstein. Thanks for listening.